0: Welcome to the Growth-Minded Accountant Podcast, where our experts will share best practices on running your firm in the digital age. This podcast is brought to you by CountingWorks Pro. Let's get started.
1: All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Growth-Minded Accountant. Today's topic is the Professor's Guide for Startup Success. My name is Lee Reams II. I'm the founder and CEO of CountyWorks. And we are joined today by Drs. Todd and Kim Saxton, award-winning professors at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, who have made it their mission to help startup founders and investors navigate the icebergs. And you can see in their background, they are going to talk about some icebergs that so often sink startups in the early stages. They are also co authors of The Titanic Effect, successfully navigating the uncertainties that sink most startups. So, before we get started with our discussion today, I just wanted to welcome you, first of all. And if you could introduce yourself to our audience with some general background of kind of why we're here and what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Thanks, Lee.
0: Yeah, so uh, we are Kim and Todd Saxton, and um, it works to kind of, sometimes people call us the dynamic duo. We (laughs) actually met at our first jobs in consulting and DC, one of those Beltway Bandits, and um, we've forged a life together, both teaching. I am a marketing professor, and I do a lot of work with digital marketing and marketing analytics, Um, and uh, as I said, we've been in and out of consulting over the years. We are angel investors, we are um, startup founders, Uh, we are startup advisors, Um, and I'm gonna let Todd tell you a little bit more about his background. I think marketing says a lot about me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm kind of in the yin and yang on the strategy and entrepreneurship side of the equation where, where Kim comes from marketing into strategy. I come from entrepreneurship and, and strategy into marketing, uh, her area of expertise. So uh, some, some overlapping there. Uh, going back to our old consulting days and extending through our research over the last 20 plus years at at the Kelly School, looking at the factors that affect success uh, of startups, how entrepreneurs can build advocacy for their ventures early on and then uh, move forward and hopefully launch and, and grow, raise money, et cetera.
0: We even have a paper out on who you should be talking to about helping you with your startup.
1: All right, I, I, I'm excited about this because I think accountants specifically uh, can learn a lot just on how, how they can help their small business clients. And then obviously um, small business owners, you know, s- starting a business specifically in kind of an uncertain time like today, whether you call it a recession, inflation, hiring problems, whatever, there's a lot of, I, we'll call them icebergs for this uh, discussion. To navigate around, so let's get started. And and one thing, um, I am a, a full-on serial entrepreneur myself. I I look at things differently, and I'm interested to see again professors that are analyzing data and a lot of different information. Kind of the feedback and insight that you know, as us business owners that we're you know in the weeds all the time, we don't may we don't step back and maybe kind of step back and say, okay, maybe we should do things differently. So I want to get started here, as uh, I just said. I want to see the professor's viewpoint on what makes one business thrive and what makes another perhaps doomed for failure. So let's just start with that lead-in question.
2: You go ahead. So I, I think importantly, and, and I, I know one of your themes that you focus on is kind of niching down, or right, looking at specific sub-segments. And in the intro, you talked about you know small businesses, but there's such a range of uh, startup small businesses uh, side gigs, uh, and, and all of them face some similar issues, but, but also some face some unique issues. Uh, I suspect there are a number of accountants who are also entrepreneurs, right? They've, they've started their own practice perhaps. So, uh, we view your audience, not just for the the group that you work with, whether it's a small business, a, a side gig, or a high potential venture that, uh, someone wants to get funding and grow dramatically. Uh, and they all have different types of strategic issues as well as accounting issues. Uh, but but uh, again, uh, not just the client base of, of your listeners, but also them as entrepreneurs.
0: So I think the other thing that's important to remember, and I, and this is like a myth of entrepreneurship, a lot of people think there's one thing. There's mm-hmm. one thing that killed that startup. There's one thing that you have to do well. No, there's not one thing. No no startup fails because of one thing. No startup thrives because of one thing. It's a combo of things. And, and that's what's the really hard part about a startup or even a small business starting anything new, because you have to get the right people working with you, whether that's the right, right co-founders or the right employees. You've got to figure out what your product is and who you're selling that product to. And you've got to have a source of funding. And the problem is that these things interact, like one decision causes an impact in the other. And that what we talked about, the Titanic effect, is when these interactions cross each other and cause failure. So you have to sort of be keeping your eyes open and say, oh, I see this issue coming, and if I make this choice, that's going to affect this other side, and kind of iterate back and forth between them. And that's what makes the difference, we think, between thriving and failing, is being able to anticipate those uncertainties and position yourself to be flexible in each domain as you're trying to manage those domains across each other.
1: Well, I find interesting, too, especially talking about startups, is I think the media has created this this kind of effect that where everyone wants to be a billion dollar company, and everyone thinks, you know, well, you know so and so did this, and that's what we should be copying, for example. But the reality is starting a small business not all small businesses become billion dollar ideas. They're not all unicorns. There's many successful lifestyle businesses or businesses that can grow exponentially. Um, so I just want to. Kind of go into that a little bit, because I consider that one of the icebergs is where your expectations are just so far off. And what you do is you make decisions based on trying to hit these grand slams. And the reality, and you just lose, you just waste money, right? You make bad decisions. You're just trying to grow. You're not really thinking logically and kind of going through the thing. So how do you think that effect kind of, you know, goes into startups failing?
0: Well, so it's an interesting thing there. Frequently, there's been some research that suggests that women are more successful at founding small businesses and startups than men in terms of lasting longer and getting to positive cash flow faster. And the argument that's been made is that women hit for the bases. So instead of going for those home run, they're like, let's get this piece and then get this piece. They have the sort of the patience and the fortitude to sit still, but also they also don't get the money. Right. So some of the things you're talking about, you know, if you get a lot of money, there's a lot of things you can kind of do. And sometimes you can actually just be stupid because you have so much money.
2: The other theme I wanted to come back to, Lee, that that uh, is very relevant here, and we call it the mis- misguided motivation uh, debt uh, where founders kind of Start overreaching for for, because they're guided by the wrong things. You know, everybody tells them, "Oh, you should go raise venture capital," and and as you know, venture capital is not for every kind of startup. And and I think your audience is in a good position to help the founder sit back and ask that question, why are you doing this? Instead of how, right? Instead of how do I get funding? How do I launch successfully? Why are you doing this? And and what are your goals? Let us help you reach those objectives. And by the way, we don't judge you any differently as a startup that wants to be a successful small business and have fewer than five employees versus one that wants to go raise a, a bunch of venture dollars.
0: And the reality is, is that some of the basics are the same. Whether you're going to have just a, a lifestyle business, so you you just want to make money for your family and you don't want to have any employees, it's just you, or you want to create a high potential startup. Some of the basics are the same. And one of our um, our athletic trainer worked for a large organization and decided he was tired of that and he wanted to just have his own business and pick his own hours and think about what he was doing and scale back his work. And, you know, we were counseling him. It's the same thing. Find your accountant. Now your taxes are all going to be on you. You don't want to do billing, do you? Or do you, you know, um, and, you know, get your your business name and understand the problems with the names that you choose and get your website, you know? And he was like, I don't even want to do anything on the website. I'm like, you still have to have a website as a calling card. So the, a lot of the, the first tactics and steps you take are going to be the same, irrespective of the size of the business.
1: Yeah, no, very good. So I'm going to I'm going to ask one more thing about accountants, and then let's get into the stages of startups. Um, so one thing that we have seen, and you know, we work with, we have eight thousand users of our uh, CounterWorks marketing platform. It's basically a digital front office. But what we've seen is the role of the accountant has changed through the pandemic, and it's accelerated <laughs> because of the pandemic. And a lot of, especially technology. Um, new technology and building software and making the automating a lot of tasks that were kind of you know manual or, or time sucking tasks, but um, they're more into consulting now. They're more virtual CFOs, and now you can afford. Before you may as a startup you couldn't afford to hire a CFO, for example. Now you can bring on a CPA firm that does virtual CFO services, fractional, whatever you call it. But for two three thousand dollars a month, I can get advice from someone who sees many, many companies, knows the metrics I should look for, and can give me much more, I, I consider value-added advisor type, um, you know, advice. So kind of when you're talking to your startups, do you know, how do you explain to them the importance of, as you said, choose your advisors well, um, you know, why the accountant is so important?
2: Yeah. And, and we frame it a little more broadly in terms of different types of expertise. So uh, in, in Kim's area, and she can speak more eloquently here, but uh, for example, you don't have one person who can do everything that needs to be done, let alone in digital marketing, let alone you know, all other aspects of branding, et cetera. Uh, so there are lots of areas of expertise embedded within uh, the finance kind of component. And, and I, I think to your audience and, and their credit, listening to podcasts like this and and framing their role more broadly in terms of the questions they ask and how they engage will be very helpful to get the the entrepreneur, the small business owner to step back and say, oh, this is somebody that can help me more than, with more than just my, how do I minimize my tax burden, right? Because they're asking questions that make me think differently. And, and hopefully that's something maybe we can help a little bit with today.
0: Yeah, we have a Kelly professor who joined us after selling her company, and she's a CPA um, with a finance MBA. And she does exactly what you said. Like, she comes in and she'll help you figure out if you set up your books right, you know, not redo the books, but just like look at them in terms of what your systems look like. And then, you know, for that thousand, two thousand dollars a month, whatever, we'll sit with you and think through your problems and how the financial side and the accounting side can help you with your problems or what problems they can solve. And we're seeing a lot of accountants that are are doing that because they can play such an important role in helping uh, streamline the business. You know, even just the form, you know, am I an LLC? Am I a, you know, uh, ESOP? Am I an S Corp? I mean, they all have very different Tax implications and reporting implications and strategic implications. And and as you probably know as well, where do you incorporate? I mean, it's a real pain in the Mm -hmm. neck. If you thought you were just going to dink around and have a lifestyle business, then you decide you want to be a high potential venture and you want to take in and money. Well, then all of a sudden you need to be a Delaware corp. So there are a lot of these things that sort of seem tactical, but really are very, very strategic. And here's the thing: most startup founders. Don't like playing in Excel or QuickBooks or any of those kinds of things. And so when they do, they get so narrow minded and focused in the details that their need to look bigger is even greater.
1: No, absolutely. And then, you know, just even financial controls, you know, you start up a new business and you hire employees, the trust factors. I mean, Google just sent what, $250,000 by mistake to an independent contractor. And it's like, how does that happen? But You know, that kind of stuff. That's the role of the accountant as we get going. So let's let's start about the initial stages of a startup development. I know you guys have insight and then we'll start kind of bringing in um, some of the things that are the where these icebergs occur and, you know, where startups start getting into trouble. So let's start with the beginning. What are the initial stages of, of a startup development?
2: Yeah, so it, it, you know the the idea which you talked about the media and its role in kind of promulgating this view of startups and entrepreneurs and uh, and and what's quote sexy so to speak uh, and and it 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 is appealing to a number of people to be part of a startup, um, but that whole kind of seed of the idea and who's on the early team uh, can be a great source of hidden debt uh, as we refer to it uh for the future. And we call it the curse of thirdsies. And, and the typical scenario uh, that we're we're talking about is, you know, the three people sitting around the bar or sitting around the, you know, having a coffee and they hatch this idea. And then in their own minds, they may even articulate it that, hey, we'll split it a third, a third, a third, without even thinking through the implications of what happens in six months as opposed to who is uh, actually kind of helping the venture move forward. So uh, simple ideas uh, like holding back uh, some of the equity, we call it inequitable equity that that uh, founders allocate from very early on, and invest some of that equity. Uh, make sure that it's being allocated over a three to five-year period based on contribution, not just handed out at the beginning. Um, unfortunately, by the time an accountant engages, it, it may be past that, but the accountant can at least help them recognize that debt burden and maybe figure out some ways to, uh, to kind of retrench and and, and guide in, in different ways.
0: Oh my gosh, there's so many stories here. <laughs> I mean, all right, so you got three of you, and so you don't divide it equally, but one person gets forty percent, and the other two get thirty percent. And then the first one is forty percent realizes, oh my gosh, they can outvote me.
1: <laughs> they have sixty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, or, you know, and we also see this, okay, we're going to give them a third because they were here and then they decide to get married and they move to another state. And then you're like, wait a minute, we've already given this out, you know? So there's like so many problems, but the real issue that you asked us to address is what are the stages? And so the early stages is what we call pre-revenue. So you get an idea, you try to validate the idea and maybe create something that's a minimally viable offering. And then once you kind of get to that point, now you're ready to start taking on customers. So now we, you know, you have this early stage where you definitely have a a minimally viable product and you have your first customers. And some people sort of think that, that this stage ends when you have sold to the first five strangers, right? So it's easy to sell to people you know. It's not easy to sell to people you've never met. And at that point, then you have to say, is this just a small business? Or is this a scalable business? And to make a scalable business, the money you put in has to return multiples back. So if I spend on marketing, every dollar should return me 10 times. If I create one customer, those customers help generate more other customers. And that's where you start to see these incredible growth curves when, when those happen. And by the time you start to scale, you're sort of a real, you know, a real business with high potential off, depending on the market that you're after. A lot of companies here want to go for $100 million, a billion dollars in terms of revenue. That's the point at which you start saying, is this a $10 million business? Is is this a $100 million business? Is this a billion dollar business? And that's when you can maybe start to think about getting money.
2: And there are different kinds of metrics associated with each one of those stages, right, in terms of not just revenue, but number of customers when you can afford to leave your day job. Uh, And I think uh, accountants and, and others can help think through what should those metrics look like at those different stages, because you measure success very differently. If you are, as Kim was suggesting, a pre-revenue startup or maybe in the launch phase versus when you're getting traction, early scaling. And then by the time you're a scalable venture and perhaps looking to raise venture capital, you need to really understand unit economics, uh, what every dollar of investment in each area uh, yields as a multiple, so that you can explain that to investors, but also operationalize that in in your business. And as I'm sure you are very aware, those require different lenses in terms of looking at financial statements and and setting up uh, benchmarks or or milestones. Well,
0: and there's one last stage we didn't talk about, which is the zombie business. <laughs> yeah. Which is <laughs> like they're they the wheels are going, but they're not going anywhere. You're hanging on a lifeline, and and maybe helping people understand this might not be the best use of ongoing investment of time and money could be really helpful. It's really hard to pull the plug on an idea. Um, we had to do it once ourselves. We got a little business that we wanted to use as a class project, a little e-commerce business. And uh, we did it for about a year and a half. And then we got the research that said that the best place that people were interested in this was on the coast. And the thing was really expensive to ship. So we we're like, OK, just write this off right now. We're done.
1: <laughs> well, at least you figured it out before you spent uh, a fortune uh, chasing it down. Well, so it was like
0: $3,000. So okay. that,
1: then that's, a, I don't even consider that a, a, a failure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you talked a little bit about, so we're going to the stages and you you have the pre-revenue. Now you have your five customers. You're starting to establish some revenue. At what point do you start looking at, and you talked about metrics and financial side, so KPI. So what are the things as a small business owner and a startup? So a lot of startups, owners, entrepreneurs don't even know. Oh, wait a second. There's benchmarks. I need to actually mm-hmm. track this and forecast it. Um, so at what point, in, in, especially in a startup where, you're learning. It's a feedback loop at this point. So now you're hearing from your customers, you made a bet on this is kind of where I want to take, this is my innovation. This is what I'm doing differently. This is how I've defined myself, my narrative, my story, right? If I niche down, whatever it is. So now I'm selling to people. At what point during that growth phase do you start looking at, okay, what are the true margins going to be here? Do I need to be making money in the beginning? Am I just trying to grow at all costs? So kind of what is your because now you're talking about icebergs. So let's start bringing in some icebergs. You know, how do you uh, consult with a startup about that kind of phase?
2: Yeah, so we we talk about this in the, the technical ocean, uh, which is one of the domains of, of hidden debt as being the overdue and overspend. And that's where uh, the, the particularly technology oriented founder uh, gets uh, kind of overly enamored with the technology and building something out before there's actually market evidence that that they can sell it. So uh, Kim talked about those magic kind of five customers who one are people that you didn't know in advance, right? And we look at, for example, when you're able to move from customers in your own backyard. So in our area, uh, it's one thing for a startup to sell successfully in central Indiana, but looking for that first major client that's out of state or, or out of the region, uh, that is one small step. Now, for a scalable venture that, you know, that being out of the state, you, you might almost assume it, right? That, that uh, of course, you're going to be selling in multiple states. and might be even going uh, outside of the United States, for example. Um, so, again, I think looking at and, and thinking about some of those metrics and getting to what we talked about with the unit economics comes a lot faster if those five customers are all talking about and using your product. In the same way, because then you can start to establish some patterns of how much did it cost to land that customer? What does the customer lifetime value start to look like? Uh, And and then how do we build those building blocks that help us understand what the financials are going to look like? The reverse side of that is, yeah, I've got five customers, and wow, they're all using it in different ways. (laughs) Well, that's hard then to build a financial model around, and and it's premature, really, to force that. You have to start to understand, okay, so who's going to stick with us? Where is the financial payoff across those five? It's really difficult to operationalize and sell to five different target segments with five different product configurations. Uh, So that's, we're doing some scenario planning around different financial models for each of those uh, and testing some, uh, some uh, scaling potential, seeing how do we actually reach more customers that want to use our product in the same way. Uh, So it becomes more of an experiment and, and you're, you're really not ready to build those financial building blocks uh, that that ideally you're you're able to build eventually.
0: Yeah. And I would add a couple of things to that. One is understanding your costs, right? So I, I think we're big both proponents that the product itself has to be profitable. Like the money I'm going to get back on you should cover the costs of the product I'm giving to you as a first thing. So then the issue is how do I cover customer acquisition costs, right? And so you have to separate those two. And a lot of times, I you know, early on, startups don't do a good job of ca- tracking their customer acquisition costs. I mean, at the simplest way I sometimes explain is it, like all the money you spent in marketing in the last year divided by how many customers you have. You know, you just spent $3 million, you got 1,200 customers, that's your customer acquisition costs. Now, do you have enough profit margin from what, you know, your actually cost to produce that? Um, that you can cover those kind of costs. Because if not, <laughs> like, this isn't going to work. And one of the big things I often encourage startups to think about is how to stop selling one-to-one on a, with customers. It's really expensive to have to reach out to every customer individually. So early on, can you find somebody who has buckets of your customers? Can you work a deal with them? How do you solve their needs so that they can help you recruit your customers and cut your per customer costs down?
1: Um, it's interesting, too, and I'm just going to throw this out there uh, in the beginning when you're especially this is more technology, I think, focus, but I think it's going to apply to most startups. And we we look at things that I advise people about control points. So can you make your product um, work like a toast or work like a slack? Where I every day my customer is going to log in and use or Zoom, for example. Every day my customer is going to use this technology or this product or whatever service it is um, to basically run their business. And then once you have those control points, you can expand the product offering into other areas where they're basically upsell, cross-selling, whatever you want to call it. But when you're starting a business, do you have any advice or insight on? You know how to identify these control points and then actually advise startups to really think about it as they're developing their product.
2: So a couple of different elements to that and and just uh, as a starting point, um, with technology companies, especially those that are more disruptive, the more disruptive you are, the more you have to recognize that there's going to be a service component. In the early stages, just training your customer on how to use the technology and how to get benefit from it. So investors, and we all love this, you know, SaaS software as a service kind of model where once you plug it in, everybody uses it on a daily basis and and they just get it. But it takes a lot of time, months, if not years, to get to that point where you're able to have te- embedded technology be used and get full value without a service component to it. So um, it, coming back to kind of budgeting and thinking about financials, uh, it's really important for startups, the more technology is embedded, uh, to to recognize and plan on a heavy service component early on to get customer adoption and usage in the way that you want. Over time, you should be able to phase that down uh, and, and have the software piece be a much bigger, what we say is the capital S uh, of software and a service becomes the software. But initially, it's almost always the the service piece just to get the clients to understand how to use it and get benefit.
0: So the other thing I think it's important to remember is that most people would rather just keep doing exactly what they're doing than make any yeah. change whatsoever. I mean, it's shocking the percent of products you know, the the two or three brands control a huge amount of your grocery cart, you know, because you just keep buying the same thing. And the same thing happens. What you're talking about with technology is if people have to change their behavior in order to use their technology, like that's almost a non-starter. You have to make it such that your solution embeds into what they're already doing, that it actually is easier. So they're going to do it because it is easier than what they were doing before, or they can do twice as much as what they were doing before. So they they like that part of it. But I think if you look at any technology that's out there, you'll find people who you don't use it every day because it's so, you know, bumpy, you know, whether that's even something as simple as Calendly or whatever, it's just, it's got to get into your workflow. And so when I think about control points, I really am thinking about Workflow? What is your customer's workflow? And how do you integrate this so that it is as seamless as can be? I mean, I get up every day and look at Facebook for news. You know, like <laughs> I didn't ever used to do that. What's that equivalent in your market?
1: Um, yeah, no, I think that's that's just part of the way the world's changed. And I think the pandemic has accelerated. And then my audience, accountants are the the most, I do it the same way I did it last year over and over and over again. They've been forced. Because of the pandemic, and their clients are actually demanding it. So what we're doing it is so CounterWorks Pro. I will sell a little bit during this podcast, but what we're doing is digitizing all these front-facing client experiences. So how now you have to be online. You have to have a solid reputation, right? You have to get reviews. People read. They do all this research about you before. I mean, you don't even know what's going on before they even decide to call you. By the time they call you, or they're ready to click that buy now button, they've already spent you know an hour, two hours, maybe more, weeks researching you and deciding, okay, I feel comfortable. Other So there's social proof that you are the right solution. I found blog articles or podcasts you did that kind of show that you're trustworthy, you're an authority. So those are a lot of things that have changed. So from a startup standpoint, um, you know, what do you throw in to how the, the world is different today, but how, what kind of advice do you throw out startups that, you know, maybe they were starting five years ago. It's not the same if you're starting up today on how you're building.
0: No, it's interesting. We did a presentation with our local uh, chapter of SCORE. You know, these are folks who have retired and come and help with the Small Business Administration, you know, new businesses. And one of the guys even asked us, He's like, well, if you're going to have a crappy website, wouldn't it be better just to have a Facebook page? No, no, you can't have a crappy website. Like there's too many templated web. Offerings these days, you know, Squarespace for two hundred dollars a year or, or whatever. I mean, the, no, you can't. You have to do the basics, as you said. You you have to. That's to be your first thing, and it can't look like crap because <laughs> no one is going to stick around.
1: Oh, very very true. So let's get into the icebergs now. So now, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a startup. I'm I'm moving forward. So where are these pitfalls that are going to trip me up and cause me failure and like, or at least make me go sideways. So let's, let's kind of change the subject a little bit.
0: All right. So we actually, so we actually built this book because of about 20 years of working with startups and hearing the same stories and the same problems, and let's just call them the same icebergs over and over again. So we actually cataloged, the ones that we were seeing most commonly. And there are 32 of them in this book. (laughs) And we have divided them into, we call them oceans because we're using, you know, sailing and Titanic as sort of the um, metaphor that we're using. And I'm sure we've messed up geology or geography, but Mm -hmm. that's what we do anyway. We call them um, oceans. So we have the human ocean, we have the marketing ocean, we have uh, the technical ocean, and then we have the strategy ocean. So these 32 icebergs go across those areas. And so to really answer that question, we'd have to like dig into um, each of those oceans. Maybe Todd, you can tee up the three big seas in the human ocean.
2: Sure. We, We talked about equity Uh, And and in our early conversation, we were talking about advisors and getting the right advisors that are part of your startup, building the right team that has the right amount of diversity. And I don't just mean demographic diversity, but industry experience, some startup experience. uh, Those are things that can help you avoid Uh, some of those debt and And one of the challenges is that when we're starting a company, we often rely on our kind of our close network. And those may be people who are trained the same way we do, have the same disciplinary focus, uh, and and look and, and you know feel like like us and while that's comforting that may not bring in the additional perspective uh simple functional knowledge uh, that can help you so how do you bridge that well one of the ways you bridge is by going to outside experts like accountants like marketing advisors uh outsource CFA, uh CFO uh, who can help you ask the the questions that can frame out uh areas in the other parts of the ocean. So who is the startup team? How do you allocate equity and and invest it over time? Who do you build as your advisory board? And then what kind of employees do you bring on uh, in the early stages? And uh, often startups and, and founders are inclined to fill a specific kind of tactical or functional need for today's problem. Um, not recognizing that they need someone who can wear a few different hats, someone who can, I talked about the five different customers before, right, and using it in different ways. They might meet, need to be technical support for one customer um, and, and you know, product design for another customer. Uh, so you, you need to bring in people that have the flexibility to wear a few different hats and not just solve today's problem, but anticipate a little bit of of what tomorrow's problem might look like as well.
0: Yeah. In the marketing ocean, we kind of divide it into three C's. One is just segments. Who are you targeting? You cannot target everybody. You have to- You have
1: can't? To, are you sure about that? i 100% <laughs>
0: talk sure. To
1: my, cannot... Talk to my uh, accountant, my CPA generalist who, you know they, they figure out why do I have no time left? Because you're trying to work, every new business is a brand new business. Focus <laughs> on a niche, go after restaurants and be the best. And you're gonna make more money with less time. Go ahead. Sorry, I don't No, No, you're absolutely
0: right. It's the same with a startup, right? Focus on restaurants, give them you know, that's the only industry you want to be in. Be amazing for them. Um, I would often say, like, if you target a customer group, you want to penetrate like 80% of them. Do you know how hard it is to penetrate 80% of something? I mean, you have to be that focused. And the one example I love to use is TRX. When he created TRX, he went to every single professional sports team, every single professional. He did like 350 meetings in a year and he got more than 90% of the professional sports teams that he went to, to use his product because that's all he did for a whole year. And once the pros are using it, you know, then Drew Brees uses it and everybody wants to do what Drew Brees does. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's brilliant. Um, The second one is positioning. Like what problem are you actually solving? Can you differentiate yourself from others in a meaningful way? And is it something people actually want? And are you consistent? You'd be stunned how many startups, if you were to look and Google them and go and look at directories where they are, they look like. Eight different things, <laughs> because one was from the first time they joined that one, and by the time they joined the next one, they had changed. And then, you know, this pivot thing—you've pivoted around to you don't even know who you are, and no two people in the company actually know who you are. Kind of a funny story. Last week was my birthday, and we were at a restaurant, and someone that we had worked with at a startup that we were helping for a short period of time leaned over and said, "Happy birthday." And proceeded to tell me this: the main marketing message that we had crafted a decade ago. <laughs> it was so ingrained in his mind. And I was like, that's amazing. And then the tactics are really around that issue I raised before. Like you can't sell to every customer. So how do you bundle your customers? How do you think about pricing? Pricing is a really dynamic topic and something you've got to really experiment with to figure out both the business model for how you get your price, but what is the right price point?
2: So Lee, I wanted to zoom back out a little bit before kind of moving on w- with this line, um, and the and the importance of identifying that segment that you go after, but also allowing in that earlier pre-revenue stage time to experiment. We call it the we can also phase. And and the the problem that you end up with if you're trying to serve everybody right if you haven't focused on a segment are all the things we've talked about but at the beginning it's okay to to look at that that whole plethora of different types of customers that you can serve and say hey, we could also do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. We have these different kinds of products or sets of functionality. We have these different market segments we could go after and actually map that in a product market matrix. Look at all those different combinations. But then you have to hone in on the one where you're going to get that 80% that Kim was talking about. It doesn't have to be the biggest segment. In fact, the one that you can most easily penetrate and go after and have the resources to serve Really nail that down and understand that. And it's the entrepreneur that's three or four years in and raising money and building a team and still doing the weekend also uh, that I think your your group, your your audience can really help with is to say, there is a time for that, but then use experiments to figure out what's that cross-section of product market fit that we can really own and, and where we can build traction and then build strategically from there. Uh, so it's it's not that there shouldn't be that phase of everybody you could possibly serve, but it's so important to then hone in on, but who should we serve, right? Where do we start?
1: Yeah, well, the beauty answer- of digital marketing is iteration and experimentation mm-hmm. is very Absolutely. quick. Like, you know, we're doing it right now with our own narrative and branding and, and email messaging. And we're just tweaking subject lines and and we're saying the same thing. We're just saying it differently because sometimes you say it one way and the audience, it just goes over their head. They don't they don't get what you're talking about. And you're sitting there going, right. what don't you understand? But it, but the iteration and the beauty of it is getting feedback right away. And then you can get to a more scalable level. One thing you said about employees and hiring I find interesting, uh, and as I've grown a few businesses, what I've found too is sometimes the people that you hire in the beginning will not be... Uh, they don't have the skill set for when you are at that next scale level. And so if you could add a little insight there because a lot of entrepreneurs kind of it's a really tough time when they're like they try to hang on in loyalty and you know how do you address that? You know you still want these people involved and you know but you're very you need to be honest and you need to tell people, this is my expectations. this is where we're going. So it, it, to me that's one of these icebergs. So kind of what advice do you guys give? When, when entrepreneurs are getting to that scalable stage and they're outgrowing some of the talent,
2: well, and, and uh, this is a very hard message to deliver, but I think it starts with looking in the mirror and saying, "Am I the right person to be at the top of this organization moving forward?" And if you're starting to feel like every day is drudgery, you know you're hating waking up in the morning and and worrying about all the things you have to do to to keep the company moving forward, it might be time to think uh, about a plan to change your role right and and have other people so i think that self reflection and self awareness if you have that and if you're asking yourself that question it makes it a lot easier and and more natural and authentic to ask that question of your team and the next level of employees and and uh that, that to me is, is is a really important piece of that equation if you go and start you know i'm not going to say pointing fingers but asking hard questions of people at a you know a lower level in the organization and you're not comfortable doing that with yourself it, it, you're going to have short uh, short lived, lived success i think
0: but i have had to ask this in a startup once <laughs> it was like there's so there are also different models of how you hire. And some people like to hire a bunch of cheap people because, you know, they've got bright ideas, they'll work really hard, blah, 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 except they don't know anything. So then it's really hard to decide whether they're effective. And I, I walked into a group where they had like eight people in the marketing group and one guy, I mean, I literally could not figure out what his job was. So I, I, I said to him, I- I'm going to give you a week. We're going to meet in a week. I'd like you to explain to me how you're adding value to this company. And he comes back a week later, he says, I I don't think I am. I'm like, (laughs) okay. So then we both agree you should be fired, right? You know, know, so I think sometimes you also don't want to discard people too early. We have seen a a startup whose first employee ended up being a vice president at the multi-billion dollar company that acquired them, right? And so she grew with the company over time. That might mean going and getting new skills might mean taking a step out and coming back. But you know, any good manager is going to have to sit and do an inventory of what skills do I need over the next 3 years? Do you have them? If you don't have them, how are we going to grow them? Right? And so tossing somebody aside because they don't have the skills that you need might not necessarily be the right move either. But I think, you know, the founder, the CEO, whoever it's their job to sort out what talent they need and to be able and willing to have hard conversations. Startups are hard. You have to be willing to have hard conversations in order to make them successful just for the business. On the flip side, anybody that works in startups, you generally see you know a lot of turnover in their positions. Six months here, a year there. And there's an easy excuse. They ran out of money. Right? It wasn't me. They ran out of money.
1: Well, you hear that all the time. <laughs> but uh, I think also. You know, the just, feedback. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. I was just going to say, talking about that that turnover issue, um, and you know, we we teach, I teach this even with large firms that there's this tendency to look from a metric standpoint at turnover, and turnover is up this year. You know, we lost 10 percent of our employee base, or whatever. Functional turnover is actually not a bad thing at all when the organization has outgrown or the individual has outgrown and they're moving on. um, But it can actually be good for the company. And particularly if you have an individual within an organization that is really uh, causing disruption for a lot of the other employees, you you have to identify that and and let them go sooner than, than later. Um, it's the dysfunctional turnover, the, the the loss of your people that are really valuable to the organization, to your customers, and are providing value. And understanding how to keep those people. So don't don't look at an absolute metric, especially as you're growing. Of what's the turnover rate? Uh, are you letting the right people move on and and keeping the right people? I wanted to circle back to the person that that Kim informed uh, and discovered. <laughs> I'm not really adding value. Six months later, they were calling to say thank you so much. I found a job where I can really add value. And now I know what to look for. And I feel so much better. I'm sleeping better. I'm enthused about my work. So you aren't actually hurting someone by letting them move on from a position where they're not adding value and and helping the organization.
1: Um yeah I, I agree with that I, I was laughing I, there's many an entrepreneur that doesn't want to wake up and go to work depending on the week or you know it depends on their mood so never yeah. you never know it's the up and downs um so I'm going to pivot a little bit I wanted to talk about something that I really care about and that's scalability um I have in my own business have gone through growth spurts and then hit kind of ceilings and then going to other growth spurts and 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 figuring out how to scale and it is you know, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of books about scalability. Um, I know you guys have some kind of business model alternatives, some ideas on how to make a business scalable. So if you can kind of explore that a little bit, I'd appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the best things that we like to think about with startups in terms of scalability is this idea that Todd said before, which is uh, kind of the product market. And, And we use that term in a slightly different way than Anderson Horowitz's, you know, product market fit per se. So we like to think about there are a bunch of different markets and there are a bunch of different products. And as a company, do you want to focus on one vertical and offer a lot of different products? Or do you want to take one product and go to a lot of different verticals? And that's, I think, where you get help with scalability. And so for some businesses, it would be to have one offering that you are going to different verticals, so you get one vertical that you can be really successful with, and you look for adjacent, similar verticals. So we had a startup that was doing something in the digital marketing space, which was essentially like sending postcards that people come into a kiosk and you know check and see, and they started in used uh, used cars, but you know what? It turns out that like retail uh, store openings are pretty similar, and oh, leasing is pretty similar and furniture sales is pretty similar. And so you, you get the product honed in that first market, and then you move to the other markets using the lessons learned. You're going to have to build some new content expertise. You're going to have to get found for that group. You might even change the product a little bit. So you have slightly different products in two markets, but you'll know how to do it because you already did it successfully one. Or if you have a really big market, and they have a wide variety of needs, now you go for a bigger share of wallet. So we got you for this piece, now we're gonna bolt on this piece or this piece, and so now you are one-stop shop with us instead of having three or four different things. To me, those are the two easiest models to think about how to scale.
2: And we've come back many times to the importance of metrics and, and financial goals as an example, and. Of course, investors love to see and entrepreneurs love to tell the story of the nice up and to the right, you know, linear curve. But as Kim was describing, if you think that through in terms of how growth is is actually operationalized, you might get 10 to 20% of a market and figure out this is we have product market fit we know how to scale here and you get to 30% 50% 80% and that might mean your year over year or even quarter over quarter or month over month growth is pretty exceptional during that time frame at the end what's going to happen that's going to start to tail off right i mean the, you you can't go much higher than 70 or 80% uh so the idea of okay the, now we need to find our next uh, growth opportunity in our next market that we want to start penetrating. Hopefully you do that before you've reached full <laughs> penetration. Uh, so you smooth out those curves a little bit. But again, for your audience, the accountant it kind of, and I, I, again, I know there's this tendency to let's just put in 10% growth on a monthly basis and have that you know cut across the whole model, but that's very unrealistic. Particularly the earlier stages in a startup, it's going to be more of a punctuated equilibrium problem or, or function, right, where you have. Uh, inflection points, a period of dramatic growth. But then really, it's healthy for the organization to sit back a little bit and say, okay, now, what's the next inflection point? How do we fund that? Uh, How do we grow that? And ideally, that's when you go and raise some additional money, you build the team and and some product, and then you go get that next market segment. So over time, do you have that up until the right? Absolutely. What the curve looks like between those points is very different if you think about uh, the evolution of the venture in different pockets of of revenue and opportunity, as opposed to this flat, straight line growth.
1: Well, I thought if I read your book, I would be hockey stick and that I don't need to worry about this. <laughs> everything's perfect. Um, well, I,
0: I want to give you one other example. Uh, nice service business growing really rapidly. And I mean, really, you'd be thrilled if this was your company. And uh, we brought an MBA team in to help them look at how to manage their growth better. And we discovered suddenly a really high cancellation rate. And so, I mean, we're talking like approaching a million dollars a year cancellations because they grew faster than they could actually service. And so the bottleneck was finding bodies. Well, that's a bottleneck right now everywhere, right? Right. Um, But so understanding, I mean, why did they oversell if they hadn't gotten a smooth operations and so we put in a lot of recommendations in place to, to systematize their operations, which were completely scattered. Everybody was doing something different. Um, so you have to scale production at the same rate that you scale acquisition of customers. And sometimes people forget that piece. Yeah,
1: I think processes are huge. And even when you're smaller, defining, you know, the the whole kind of scattered, we just do react versus having processes that you can repeat over and over again that everyone knows, you know, and you had mentioned about some marketing stuff too, like uh, a a political campaign is usually the way I tell clients to think about their narrative and their marketing, figure out two main talking points and repeat it over and over and over and over again. And then, you know, by the time you're tired of your marketing, that's about the time it's starting to work. So that's uh, some good insight. So I want to go into a couple terms that are There's been books written about them, and there's two terms. Um, One is a lean startup, and the other one is profit first. Let's start with lean startup. So explain, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, startups are, especially today, it's going to be hard to raise money. So you're going to be family and friends. You're going to be lean (laughs) when you start up. So kind of what does that mean um, to you as a startup? How does that affect you? And how does that, on your roadmap and planning, how do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, and and first, uh, while we do believe there are some some weaknesses in the lean startup approach, or at least how it's operationalized, we also are actually big fans of of moving away from trying to write a whole business plan and figure out, uh, you know, how big this business is going to be uh, in your dorm room or in your garage or in your parents' basement uh, before you ever talk to a customer, right? And and the lean startup. Uh, was a move to say look you don't have to get it perfect before you get out there and start interacting with customers we are big fans of that approach the problem is when you operationalize that in the wrong way is what we call the pinball entrepreneur right which is every time you hit a barrier you bounce in a different direction well what does that result in five different marketing messages over an 18 month period and a different target segment every you know every two months and and you know pretty soon you're your own employees don't even know who you are, what you care about, uh, let alone your customers, your market, et cetera. So the idea of being a little bit more strategic about how you experiment and what parts of your core values you kind of maintain uh, through the the whole early stages of the organization, uh, those those are things that we think are really important. So while we're, again, big fans of Lean Startup, we also see some cautionary notes about how that leads to hidden debts.
0: But to explain the Lean Startup a little bit more, the idea is to think about what are the possibilities that you can deliver on as quickly as possible. And that's an experiment. It's a hypothesis. And maybe you have two hypotheses. So you go after one hypothesis, you gather the data, and now you switch to the second hypothesis. The problem that I often see with the Lean Startup approach is people forget to look at the results. Mm -hmm. Like they start this experiment but they aren't really scientific in this experiment. They vary all these things at once. And then they're like, I don't know, was that effective or not? I mean, even in some of the work that I do, I'm working with somebody and we've had, you know, seven A-B tests of landing pages, right? Pretty typical thing to do. Well, the best in the the best conversion rate in the first one was around eight percent. And then we kept A, B testing this around and we're now down to six and a half percent at the seventh one. And I'm like, um, hold up, hold up, hold up. Can we go back to that 8%? Like my thought was each experiment should get better than 8%, not go down from 8%. No, you and try like, to peak
1: and then go back down. <laughs> and
0: they're like, oh, that's a really good point. I was like, you should have called it after the second experiment if you weren't getting higher conversion rates. I mean, it's just poor execution of experimentation.
2: Yeah, and, and just coming back to your own example, you were saying we're we're experimenting with even you know the the subject line of of emails or or something along those lines, and and experimenting with that, um, and and the entrepreneurial inclination, especially in that we can also phase is I know we'll send one one message by email to this market segment focusing on this value proposition, and then we'll send a blog. Uh, to this other market segment with a different value, that's not a controlled experiment, right? You don't have a good basis for comparison. So you need to be scientific and and systematic about it, as Kim was saying.
1: Uh, Perfect. So now I'm going to go to profit first. And the the concept of profit first is, if you're going to be in business, the idea is that you're going to pay yourself and you're going to actually make money. And the reality is kind of the profit first philosophy, I guess, if you want it, is, you know, what do I need to make? What do I, at minimum, let's say it's $100,000. And then back out, back in to your financials. How am I going to get to that hundred thousand? So, first of all, what do you think of that approach? Um, a lot of accountants actually use this for their their business owners, and you know, because a lot of people are struggling. They're like doing all this work, and they're they're not making any money, and it's they can't live, you know. So they're struggling, and it's just stressful. Um, so, kind of you know, from a professor's standpoint, what do you guys think about the proper first idea model? I guess.
2: Well, so there are trade-offs to, to every approach, right? But what, what we like about that is it forces a fundamental question of what does success look like to you? And, and you know, as we started with, I think that's a really important uh, early question to ask. And I'll flip this a little bit and share the number of times we've had a successful entrepreneur, and I'm putting it in quotes for, for uh, your audience who may not be able to see, who said, yeah, i got a su- successful business. We're selling $200,000, and you know, we netted $40,000 in profit last year. It was say, nice, but what are you paying yourself? Oh, I don't have a salary yet. I'm doing this as a side gig. And it's like, okay, so do you want this to be your full-time business? And and what is your salary today, and how are you going to cover that? Um And and I think particularly in the side gig era, that question of what do you pay yourself, what do you want to, to net out of this as a starting point is a really important, not just operationalizing financials, but an important strategic question to ask. Now, whether you use that as the way to run your business from a financial standpoint, I think has, uh, again, trade-offs and, and nuances to it. Um, but asking that fundamental question to me is, is really important and something that facilitating that for uh, your, your audience's clientele is, is very helpful and important.
0: Yeah, and particularly for sole founders, that's where we often start the discussion is like, you know, it, it, do you want this to be your full-time job? Okay, well, let's work through the math of what it's going to take for this to be your full-time job because we're assuming that you still need to have an income and pay bills with it, right? Um, The other thing that you're seeing is a lot of talk in the venture uh uh, funding world, venture capital world, about something called a Pegasus. And you probably heard about a unicorn. So these are companies that have a billion dollars in valuation. But they're also talking about a Pegasus, which a Pegasus is a horse that can fly, which means that you can fund your own growth out of your own revenue. And there's an increasing trend towards this for startups that you should be able to make enough money to fund your own growth. And that way you hold on to the, all the equity. That's the upside is if you can figure out how to you know, build your business, make money as you go, pay yourself and then fund your growth, then like that's going to be the biggest home run.
2: Yeah. Put, put slightly differently. If you put the same amount of time and energy into raising investors, identifying people to invest in the money, if you could spend that same amount of time and energy and grow your customer base and bring in the same dollars for all good reasons, do, do the latter, right? It's, because once you start that uh fundraising approach, it becomes all consuming and it's very demanding. And, and if you can grow your customer base, that's a better use of time and energy, at least at some stages in venture evolution.
1: Yeah. So there's all kinds, I mean, I have all kinds of viewpoints of I, I usually try to bootstrap as much as I can. And Absolutely. you know, occasionally you get outsourced you know, money, but you try to figure out how to grow organically and then reinvest the the dollars in the scalability and growth. And that what's to me makes entrepreneurs also. If you can figure out those scalable ideas, you know, getting that network effect, getting ways that you can grow faster using other people, you know, user generated content, whatever it is, others talking about you, those are ways that startups can bridge the fact that they're not funded like some of these larger firms Mm -hmm. that are running for market share. So we've, we've this has been a great discussion. I have a couple of questions left, and we'll kind of wrap this up. We could be here all day, which is good. <laughs> um, so one thing that I did write in one of my notes and a question I wanted to ask you guys is: Are there other services or tasks that startups? Um, that accountants could be filling right now, like some voids and some challenges that startups have that the the old way of thinking of an accountant with a pocket protector and, you know, just doing your bookkeeping, you know, what are those roles that you're taking on and they should be, and and that business owners, entrepreneurs should start demanding that their CPA or accountant, EA, whatever is doing for them.
0: Yeah, so again, that if you can be more of a one-stop shop, so what are those services that require expertise that have regulatory components to them where that kind of expertise would be really useful. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind to me is something along the lines of a PEO or one of your previous guests, you know, the payroll side. I mean, he was the accountant who started doing payroll. I mean, all these small businesses, all that stuff is achingly painful. Um, And as you might be aware, all the state regulations are, you know, very different. And so- um, it's easy for a business to get in trouble because they're, you know, not holding back the right amount that the state uh, and the federal government want. Yeah. I mean, we actually have a rental house, and our property manager, we were paying the local convention tax, but apparently they weren't paying the local oh, you convention go. tax. <laughs> so they Guess who gets in trouble for that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like. Well, we hired you to take care, make all that go away. So, like all those hassles, like how do you make that go away? Bill paying, you know, there's X amount of bill paying that has to happen. I could see people wanting to out, you know, source some of those things.
2: Also, I, and Kim, I know, is a big fan of uh, really understanding and organizing your customer database, and yeah. in that's fallen into two different functions in a lot of companies, especially startups. Uh, and it's either the marketing domain or the IT domain. But I think there's an argument that the finan- financial function, whether that's an accountant or someone else, is in actually a really good position to understand how to organize data and have it flow into your financial statements. So bridging and helping customers organize their customer database, understand the value that's embedded there, and then integrate that into financials, to me, um, and and that may be being done by a large number, but but that to me seems like an interesting extension to think about.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget I, I the phone yeah, call I, gonna... I got where someone who had every every event they did was a separate Excel spreadsheet. I'm like, you need to put all those Excel spreadsheets into one file. And they finally did, and they called me like, oh my gosh, do you know what this data is telling me? <laughs> It could five hours, but.
1: <laughs> oh, it's scary. I mean, so a lot of times you don't even know who your most profitable segment is and then focusing more effort on them and scaling that side. Um, all right. So I'm going to wrap this up with uh, my last deal. And this is you're going to be able to just throw all your icebergs in into this one. <laughs> so to me, we are, you know, again, politics and the media, whether we're in a recession or not, the indicators, California just came out and showed. Dramatically, uh, a dip, huge dip in the tax revenue from their budgets in the last couple of months. So the, the the red flags are all over us. So let's say we are in a tough economic period. If you were an entrepreneur and you were, there's many times it's good opportunities to launch businesses when other businesses are pulling back. So kind of what advice would you have for aspiring entrepreneurs right now as they prepare in uncertain times? And you know what are the the initial icebergs that you wanted to look for or look out for? That's a better way to say it.
2: First, I'd like to start with uh, what hopefully might be some source of inspiration. And if you look back historically over 100 years plus, GE, Disney, Microsoft, Salesforce, more recently Airbnb, were all founded during very challenging economic times. So that idea of bootstrapping, doing more with less, when you're in a, a a more challenging economic environment becomes kind of ingrained in your culture uh and and that can be that can provide a, a really helpful base the other side is which we're not really experiencing uh right now but certainly happened earlier in the pandemic uh and and will happen in the future uh is that a more challenging economic times does free up talent, right? And and people can be had for equity, uh, for for less dollars. So it's a great time to prospect, particularly from struggling competitors uh, or or other organizations. Uh, that, that's a great time to boost your talent and and uh, build the the team that then positions you for success when when coming out of the challenging economic times.
0: And we saw this in the pandemic, there were a lot more for the first time in 30 something years, we saw an increase in entrepreneurship during the pandemic. And some of that, unfortunately, was out of necessity, people's jobs went away. So like I better figure out how to do this. Um, And so I think, you know, we all have to be thinking, you know, broadly, we have traveled around the world. One of the things we noticed was when we were in Thailand, and Todd happened to do a presentation on the day that the Thai stock market hit a 10 year high is that that culture is incredibly entrepreneurial. And you want to know why? Because the government has no infrastructure. So if you are not entrepreneurial and creating a business for your family, you're not going to eat. <laughs> so this adversity has the potential to galvanize people who had an idea um, to really start to take action on those ideas. And they should listen to those, those ideas.
1: All right. Uh, perfect. So if someone was interested in learning more from you guys or ordering the book, I know there's a bunch of, I think it's on Amazon or a couple others, but no, uh, sure. please let everyone know how would they, if that's the big thing, or if you're doing consulting, you know, what, what would your, uh, how would they order the book?
0: Yeah. So Amazon, the Titanic effect, you know, uh, successfully navigating this, the uncertainties that sink most startups. We have a website, the uh, titaniceffect.com. You're welcome to go there. You can, there's merchandise and other kinds of fun stuff. We have a blog there. You're welcome to read that. If you want to talk to us, we, you know, we do, we have what we call a one coffee rule, or maybe it's a two coffee rule. We'll have coffee with you twice. And we do that now over Zoom, you know, to, to just talk about it. Uh, we have had people who read the book and then go onto the website and send us an email saying, can I take you to lunch? <laughs> um, so we're we're pretty flexible and open. Um, if we're here, if we can help you, please feel free to reach out.
2: And we're okay. both uh, identifiable by search on IU Kelly School site, uh, Todd, T-O-D-D, Saxton, and Kim Saxton. Uh, and we honestly, we would love to hear any feedback, thoughts, follow-up questions. Uh, as as you started with, what, what we're passionate about, we're educators. We really like to work with entrepreneurs and the people who serve them. So uh, consider your audience, both of, of, of those markets, as we said, and uh, any follow-up questions or, or uh, opportunities for clarification, we'd love to hear from you. So please reach out.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate your time. I thought this was great. There's a lot of things that I was interested in too. And again, I like hearing professors' points of view. You guys sit back at the data, you're more analytical. And again, on entrepreneurs, we're just making decisions based on how we, you know, what the day is like. Um, so, for my audience, uh, Counterworks Pro is a digital marketing platform. We are your digital front office and we will help you find more clients, startups helping them build their businesses, helping them communicate the value that you can provide, getting more out of the relationship, building trust before they decide to hire you. So there's a lot of things, counterworkspro.com. You can check it out. I'm gonna leave all the Titanic effect information in the description of the blog. And again, feel free to hit any of us up on LinkedIn. I'm sure we'll be happy to answer any questions or things that we didn't cover in this discussion. We went way over time, but hopefully there's a good enough information here. I appreciate it guys. And hopefully we'll hear from you guys soon. Thank you. All
0: right. Thank you. Thanks, Lee.